0: The headlines tonight. Marines raid Bahamas, find Nassau surprisingly underguarded. Missouri compromise. Congress plays one slave state, one free state. And Wyoming gets first national forest trees rejoice. Plus coming up, we find out whether the New York City sewer system is ready for its close-up. Those are the headlines. I'm Martin Bang, and this is News Bang.
1: News Bang. Unraveling the tapestry of misinformation thread by thread. 1776.
0: On this day in 1776, the American Revolutionary War was in full swing. A ragtag bunch of freedom-loving colonists, led by Samantha Nichols, decided they'd had enough of Britain's taxes and tea parties. Enter the Continental Marines, a rowdy bunch of Founding Fathers in uniforms one size too tight.
2: These so-called Minutemen were called such because they could don their wigs and tricorn hats in 60 seconds flat. They stormed British strongholds up and down the 13 colonies, causing mayhem with their muskets and melee attacks.
0: One such skirmish saw them take Nassau, an idyllic Caribbean island known for its white beaches and even whiter sandwiches. The Redcoats didn't stand a chance against these colonial marauders as they looted their way through Fort St. John's and Cokes. With victory at hand, they seized all the cannonballs and Jamaican rum before sailing home to New England like pirates on shore leave. 1820 On this day in 1820, the United States Congress passed the Missouri Compromise, an attempt to stop Americans from having a spat over slavery. Missouri and Maine were both given their place settings at the dinner table. Missouri as a slave state and Maine as a free state. It was like one of those family gatherings where you have to invite your racist uncle but don't want him near Aunt Ethel's silverware. The compromise, signed by President James Monroe, was like refereeing between quarreling children. Let them both have something so they'll shut up and pass the gravy. This was a precursor to 1850s fugitive slave clause which required runaway slaves to be returned home or risk paying for grandma's china pattern. They broke last Thanksgiving.
2: In related news, two escaped slaves spoke exclusively to Newsbang. This sucks, said one, Cletus Jenkins. We finally found freedom in Canada, and now we got to go back to picking cotton till our fingers bleed. His companion, Lucinda Brown Phillips, added tearfully. I guess there ain't no justice for colored folk, except maybe down at Judge Jenkins. He seems fair.
1: 1891
0: Today marks the 1327th anniversary of a momentous occasion in America's lumberjack history. On this day in 1891, President Benjamin Bison Skinner signed an executive order creating Shoshone National Forest, the first ever national forest in Wyoming. Covering nearly two and a half million acres, or as they measure it there, Bob's front garden, it was intended to be a pristine wilderness for endangered species, such as trees and bears who had forgotten their own house keys.
2: Despite being the least popular state in the Union, which isn't saying much when you think about it, Wyoming is still larger than most countries including France and Belgium put together sideways. It's like they said at the time, if we can send men to the moon why not give some of this land back? The forest became part of Yellowstone National Park where hundreds flock each year to see old geysers spouting off.
0: Today there are 154 national forests dotted across America managed by those friendly folk at the U.S. Forest Service. Because when you care enough to make sure no one else does, send a card.
1: News Bang. Dissecting the truth one layer of lies at a time. Here to unravel the enigma of tomorrow's meteorological mayhem
0: is Shakanaka Giles.
3: Tomorrow, in the southeast, expect a drizzle that's as persistent as a toddler demanding ice cream. It'll be a bit like a wet dog shaking itself all over your day. Moving on to the Midlands, where the sun will be playing hide-and-seek with the clouds. It's as if Mother Nature's having a laugh at our expense. In the north, It'll be a bit blustery, like a gaggle of old ladies gossiping in the corner of a tea shop. Keep your hats on, folks. And uh, finally, in Scotland, it'll be a right mixed bag of weather. A bit like a lucky dip at a a car boot sale. You never know what, what you're going to get. Whoa, and don't forget, it's pancake day tomorrow. So, whether you're flipping pancakes or dodging raindrops, have a good one. In summary, then, wet dogs, Mother Nature's jokes, old ladies' gossip, and a lucky dip. And that's all the weather.
1: 1776
0: In the annals of the American Revolutionary War, the year 1776 bore witness to a daring raid on Nassau in the Bahamas. A feat of such audacity it would make even the most seasoned action hero blush. The Continental Marines, a formidable force under the stewardship of Samuel Nicholas, emerged triumphant, their plunder including military supplies that would later prove invaluable in their ongoing struggle for independence. The Marines, a formidable force of onboard security during naval engagements, were disbanded in 1783, their legacy immortalized in the annals of history. And now to delve deeper into the Raid of Nassau, We turn to our intrepid reporter, Brian Bastable.
4: Here I am, on the front line, it's mayhem. There's gunfire shouting chaos. The soldiers, a motley crew, fight for their lives, the lives of their comrades and for their new nation. I see Samuel Nicholas, a tall man with a fierce look in his eyes. He commands the Continental Marines. They're a rough and ready bunch, but they're disciplined and they're brave. The British, they're not giving up easily, they're fighting back with everything they've got. But the Americans, they're determined, they're not going to let the British take their freedom away. I see a soldier, he's young, barely out of his teens, he's scared, but he's fighting. He's got a wound on his arm, but he's still standing, he's a hero. The battle rages on, but the Americans, they're holding their own. They're not going to back down. They're fighting for their freedom and they're not going to stop until they get it. This is Brian Bastable reporting from the front line of the American Revolutionary War. The battle for freedom, the battle for the future. It's a battle that will go down in history.
1: Uh, 1991.
0: The year is 1991 and a motorist named Rodney King has been brutally beaten by officers from the Los Angeles Police Department. The shocking incident, captured on film by a resident and broadcast worldwide, has ignited public outrage and intensified tensions between the African-American community and the police. Police brutality, the excessive and unwarranted use of force by law enforcement, and social inequality, the uneven distribution of resources within society based on factors like race, gender and class, are now at the forefront of global discourse. To delve deeper into the unfolding situation, we turn to our correspondent, Ken Schitt. Ken, what can you tell us about the current state of affairs in Los Angeles?
5: Greetings, degenerates! As we journey back to the godforsaken year of 1991, let's wallow in the seething cesspool of police brutality and social inequality that plagued the city of Los Angeles. Motorist Rodney King, a brother just trying to make his way in this fucked up world, was viciously beaten by a gang of Los Angeles Police Department thugs. It was like watching a pack of rabid dogs tear into a helpless victim, and the whole goddamn world saw it. The brutal assault was captured on film by a brave resident and broadcasted worldwide, igniting a public uproar that could not be ignored. People were outraged, and rightfully so, The police had crossed a line and it was time to hold them accountable. But the truth is, this wasn't just about one incident. It was about the systemic issue of police brutality, a plague that disproportionately affects communities of color. It's about the uneven distribution of resources and the deep-seated social inequality that keeps these poor bastards trapped in cycles of poverty and violence. We need to confront these issues head-on to demand justice and equality for all. We need to stand up to the system that perpetuates this madness and fight for a world where everyone has the same opportunities, regardless of the color of their skin. This is Kenshit, signing off and reminding you that change is possible, but it won't happen unless we demand it. Let's make a difference, one angry report at a time.
1: 1820.
0: A pivotal moment in the annals of American history, the year 1820, Congress passed the Missouri Compromise. This legislation, balancing the desires of northern and southern states, admitted Missouri as a slave state and Maine as a free state. Signed into law by President James Monroe, the Missouri Compromise sought to maintain equilibrium regarding slavery expansion. Missouri, a Midwestern state with a diverse landscape, and Maine, the easternmost state in New England, found themselves at the heart of this contentious debate. Slave states permitted slavery, while free states prohibited it before 1865. The U.S. Constitution's Fugitive Slave Clause obliged the return of escaped slaves to their owners. Hardeman Pesto now delves deeper into the intricacies of this
6: landmark legislation. I'm here with noted historian, Professor Sir Lionel Haystacks, We're discussing the Missouri Compromise of 1820, a deal that was struck to maintain the balance of power between the slave states and the free states in America. And what can you tell us about this compromise, Professor? Well, Martin, it was
7: was a significant event in American history. The Missouri Compromise allowed Missouri to enter the Union as a slave state and Maine to enter as a free state. This helped to maintain the balance of power in Congress between the slave
6: states and the free states. That's right, Martin. It was a delicate situation. The northern states were opposed to the expansion of slavery, while the southern states were in favor of it. The Missouri Compromise was a way to keep the peace, so to speak. And how did this compromise come about, Professor? Well, it was a long and difficult process,
7: Martin. There was much debate in Congress, and many different proposals were put forward before the Missouri
6: Compromise was finally agreed upon. Yes, it was a real nail-biter, Martin. The tension in Congress was palpable. I can only imagine the look on President Monroe's face when he finally signed the legislation into law. And what was the impact of the Missouri Compromise, Professor? Well, Martin, it had a significant impact on
7: American politics and society. The Compromise helped to maintain the balance of power in Congress, but it also deepened the divisions between the slave states and the free states, it set the stage for the future conflict over slavery that would eventually
6: lead to the Civil War. That's right, Martin. The Missouri Compromise was a temporary solution to a complex and contentious issue. It was a band-aid on a bullet wound, so to speak. And what can we learn from the Missouri Compromise today, Professor? Well, Martin,
7: I think there are many lessons to be learned from the Missouri Compromise. It shows us the importance of compromise and negotiation in politics, but it also highlights the dangers of trying to find quick fixes to complex problems. It's a reminder that the decisions we make today can have far-reaching consequences for future generations. That's
6: right, Martin. The Missouri Compromise may have been signed over 200 years ago, but its lessons are still relevant today. It's a reminder that we must always strive to find common ground even in the face of seemingly insurmountable differences. Well, there you have it. The Missouri Compromise of 1820, a deal that
0: helped to shape the course of American history. Thank you, Professor Sir Lionel Haystacks, for joining us tonight. Good night, Martin. Good night. Uh, but it's not good night from me, because up
1: next... 1913.
0: Thousands of women marched in Washington, D.C. today, boldly protesting their exclusion from American society. The woman suffrage procession, the first of its kind, saw Alice Paul and Lucy Burns rallying for women's rights and equality. Now let's join our correspondent, Melody Wintergreen, who's bravely battling the fashion faux pas of the era to bring us the latest from the front lines of first-wave feminism.
8: Washington, DC, the year is 1913, and the streets are awash with a sea of sashes and signs the air is perfumed with anticipation and the scent of change. It's a day that will be etched in the annals of history as thousands of women, led by the indomitable Alice Paul and Lucy Burns, march in protest against their exclusion from American society. This isn't just a parade, it's a procession for progress, a march for the matriarchy. The woman's suffrage procession, as it's been christened, is not just another walk in the park, It's a stride towards equality, a step towards justice. It's the first suffragist parade in DC, and it's not just about making footprints, it's about leaving an imprint on the political landscape. Alice Paul, with her fiery spirit and unyielding resolve, stands at the helm of this monumental movement. Beside her, Lucy Burns, her eyes ablaze with determination. Together, they've orchestrated this symphony of solidarity for NASA turning Washington into their stage. Their goal? To protest their exclusion from society. Their method? A march that will echo through time. The streets of Washington have become their soapbox, their platform to voice their discontent. As I stand here amidst this tide of tenacity, I can't help but marvel at the spectacle unfolding before my eyes. Women from all walks of life have come together in unity, their voices harmonizing into a powerful chorus demanding change. The capital city named after George Washington is witnessing a revolution of its own today. A revolution not fought with guns and cannons, but with words and willpower. First-wave feminism has taken center stage today as these women fight for their right to vote and legal equality. So as Alice Paul and Lucy Burns lead this procession down Pennsylvania Avenue, it seems that Washington, D.C. is not just the capital of the United States today, it's the capital of change, the capital of courage, and most importantly, the capital of women's rights. This is Melody Wintergreen reporting for Newsbang at the heart of a revolution.
1: Newsbang, the unveiling of the unseen, the revealing of the real.
0: Ryder Boff presents this segment on the first indoor ice hockey game at the Victoria Skating Rink in Montreal, 1875. Watch James Creighton and McGill University students skillfully dodge opponents and navigate the ice rink with a puck.
9: Ah, the year is 1875 and what a time to be alive. The first indoor ice hockey game was played at the Victoria Skating Rink in Montreal and who should be at the helm but James Creighton and a band of McGill University students armed with nothing but their wits and some rather sharp skates. The puck drops and we're off. Skaters are gliding like swans on a frozen lake if swans were prone to sudden bursts of violence over a slab of rubber. There's Creighton dodging an opponent with the grace of a gazelle being chased by a particularly insistent lion. And look at those McGill boys go, skating as if they've just realised their diplomas depend on it. Now let me tell you, back in my day at public school, our version of ice hockey involved sliding dinner trays across an icy pond while trying to avoid Mrs Snetterton's disapproving glare. She'd stand there, arms folded tighter than an origami swan made by an arthritic monk. Montreal itself, ah what a city, a place where the streets have more culture than my ex-wife's yoghurt maker. Founded in 1642, when most Englishmen thought bathing was something only to be done every leap year. And let's not forget about McGill University, founded in 1821, older than my Aunt Maud's fruitcake recipe and twice as prestigious. Over 39,000 students flocking through its doors like pigeons to Trafalgar Square, minus the risk of being defecated upon from a great height. Back on the rink now? It's chaos on ice. One player's stick handling resembles that of a one-armed wallpaper hanger during an earthquake. Another seems to have taken his inspiration from Bambi's first steps, legs splaying in directions nature never intended. It must be said, though, This newfangled sport has all the makings of greatness, speed, skill, and enough body contact to make even my chiropractor wince with glee. So here we are, witnessing history glide past us like so many hopefuls at a debutante ball, only far less polite and considerably more bruised by evening's end. Until next time when I shall return with another tale spun from sport's rich tapestry, or possibly just unravel another yarn from my own checkered past.
0: Our environmental correspondent, Penelope Windchime, delves into the lush world of America's first national forest, Shoshone, and the US Forest Service's role in preserving its serene beauty.
10: Ah, the whispers of history rustle through the leaves as we cast our minds back to 1891, when Shoshone National Forest sprouted up in Wyoming like a majestic green phoenix. This sprawling emerald paradise, nearly 2.5 million acres of whispering pines and chattering streams, became the very first national forest in the United States. It's a verdant jewel nestled in the bosom of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, where Mother Nature hums her ancient lullaby. Wyoming, oh Wyoming! A land so vast yet so coy with its populace, shying away from the bustling crowds to remain the least-peopled state despite its grand size. The tenth largest by area but number one in our hearts for spacious skies and amber waves of grain. And let us not forget those 154 national forests, each a federally protected haven managed by the gallant US Forest Service. These are America's green lungs, inhaling carbon dioxide and exhaling sweet oxygen for all creatures great and small. So tonight, as we nestle into our eco-friendly bamboo sheets, let us dream of Shoshone's centennial trees standing tall like nature's own sentinels guarding the serenity of Earth's sacred spaces. For it is they who hold the secrets of centuries within their rings and continue to watch over us with leafy benevolence.
0: Polybeep, reporting on a thrilling day in transportation with colliding trains in Poland, the Loch Ness Monster aiding traffic police, ducks protesting in Lower Slaughter and a roller disco on the M25.
11: Well, it's a doozy of a day in the annals of transportation, isn't it? Buckle up as we take a whirlwind tour of 2012. Today's date, March 3rd, 2012. Two passenger trains, as if locked in a deadly waltz, have collided near the picturesque town of Szczekoczny, Poland, a tragic tale of human error, resulting in 16 deaths and 58 injuries. Commuters, if you're travelling through the region, you might want to take a detour through the 14th century. In other news, the famed Loch Ness Monster has taken a break from her usual cryptid antics and has decided to lend a hand to the Scottish Traffic Police. If you're driving along the A82 near Inverness, watch out for the occasional tail flick and the accompanying tidal wave. And if you're really lucky, you might just catch a glimpse of the elusive Nessie directing traffic with her mighty flippers. Meanwhile, down in the quaint English village of Lower Slaughter, the local ducks have decided to stage a protest against the recent influx of tourists. The A429 is currently gridlocked with feathered demonstrators who are demanding better access to the village's prime breadcrumb scattering spots. Lastly, in a bizarre turn of events, the M25 has been transformed into a makeshift roller disco. If you're stuck in traffic, why not lace up those skates and join in the fun? Just remember to keep your eyes on the road and your disco moves in check. This is Polly Beep signing off with a reminder to keep your spirits high and your seatbelts fastened. Safe travels folks.
1: news bang, uncovering the naked truth one story at a time. 1972. In a blast from the
0: past, we take you back to 1972, when Jethro Tull, a British rock band, unveiled their parody concept album, Thick as a Brick. A scathing critique of the genre, the album was presented as the work of an eight-year-old prodigy named Gerald Bostock, although the lyrics were penned by the band's lead, Ian Anderson. As we unravel this musical riddle, we turn to our culture correspondent, Smithsonia Moss, for a deeper dive into the world of concept albums and epic poems. Over to you, Smithsonia.
10: Now, at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us.
12: Waho, my fabulous creatures of the night. Smithsonia Moss here, live and unleashed ready to take you on a trip down memory lane to 1972. That's right, we're talking about the year Jethro Tull, those British rock wizards, decided to troll the entire music industry with their parody concept album, Thick as a Brick. Now, for those of you not hip to the jive, a concept album is like a vinyl Instagram story, but with more flutes and less booty. And Thick as a Brick? It's the mother of all concept albums, a continuous piece of music that's basically a middle finger to the whole genre. It's like, hey, you want a concept? Here's a concept. An eight-year-old boy's epic poem. Except plot twist. There is no boy. It's all the mad genius of Ian Anderson, the band's frontman, who probably wrote the lyrics in between yoga sessions and playing the flute while standing on one leg. And let's talk about this Gerald Bostock kid, the fictional poet-prodigy. He's like the Banksy of the music world, except instead of leaving art on buildings, he's leaving epic poems on vinyl. And the fans? They ate it up like it was the last supper at a rock and roll banquet. But the real gag is, Thick as a Brick isn't just a parody. It's a full-on banger. It's like if Monty Python and Led Zeppelin had a love child, and that child was raised by a pack of wild minstrels. It's a roller coaster of rock that takes you from zero to 60 in the time it takes to drop the needle. So there you have it, my darlings. Jethro Tull's Thick as a Brick is the ultimate prank, a satirical masterpiece that's still giving us life 50 years later. It's proof that sometimes the best way to make a statement is to take the piss out of everything. And on that bombshell, I'm out. Keep it locked here for more cultural shenanigans that'll make your head spin faster than a record on a turntable. Smithsonian Moss, dropping the mic.
1: News Bang. Exposing the mole people of misinformation. 1924.
0: In a momentous event that has left the Muslim world grappling with the implications, the Ottoman Caliphate, the last widely recognized caliphate, was abolished in 1924 as part of Turkey's secularization. The caliphate, an Islamic institution led by a caliph, was claimed by the Ottoman rulers from 1517 until its dissolution. This development marked the end of a long line of influential caliphates, such as the Rashidun, Umayyad, and Abbasid caliphates. Now to delve deeper into the significance of this event, we turn to our religious correspondent, Pastor Kevin Monstrance.
13: Thank you, thank you. Now, I must say, when the producer first told me tonight's theme would be the end of the Ottoman Caliphate, I thought, oh dear, how does one find humour in the abolishment of a centuries-old Islamic institution? But then I recalled my dear old school chum, Mustafa al Hakim, whose family fled the Ottoman court in the early 1900s and opened an amusingly unsuccessful kebab shop in Wapping. (laughs) The al Hakims quickly realized that Londoners had no appetite for kebabs in 1924, so they converted the shop into a bookmaker's, and thus began my early education in the art of betting on horses. (laughs) I spent many a day in that smoky shop with Mustafa, listening to his family's wild tales of palace intrigue back in Constantinople. According to Mustafa's uncle Mahmud, the last Ottoman caliph, Hote the Hapless, was quite the incompetent ruler. Why? Mahmud claimed that Hote once got his turban stuck in his chariot wheel before an important battle, delaying the army for hours and his chief advisor, the legendary bumbling Bey, was no better. Bey once accidentally set fire to the imperial gardens with his hookah. No wonder the caliphate fell, with those two in charge. <laughs> the day the caliphate was officially abolished, the al-Hakims received a telegram delivered by a breathless messenger. Stop, it read. Caliphate kaput. Hotter ascent packing sands turban. Come home. Well, the Al-Hakim's had a good laugh over that, I can tell you. Who needs musty old caliphates and sultans anyway, Mustafa declared. (laughs) We've got something far better now, betting and bookmaking, and with that he offered me favourable odds that his favourite horse, Swift Sultan, would win the 3.30 race at Newmarket. (laughs) Well, Swift Sultan ended up coming in dead last, but I didn't mind losing a few shillings. The tale of Hotter and the hopeless Caliphate had given me a fine idea for a comedy skit, you see. So I suppose every ending has the potential for a new beginning if you look at it the right way. Even the end of an empire. And on that philosophical note, I bid you all a very good night.
0: And now let's take a look at tomorrow's headlines. The Times... Continental Army's artillery antics astonish Boston Brits. There's a photo there of a startled redcoat. The sun. Commandos. cod-tastic capers in Norway. They've got a picture of a fish and chips supper. The telegraph. Buddha Pasicharan Bangkok Bonanza begins. There's a diagram there of a very large statue. And finally, the mirror. Giant chicken terrorizes local post office. Join us tomorrow when we'll be looking at the ongoing crisis in the world of competitive origami. We'll talk to the Minister for Paper, the Minister for Scissors, and the Minister for Regret. That's all from us this evening. Now it's time for the news where you are. Or at least where we hope you are. If you're not,
1: well that's your problem. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.